Hello and welcome to Beckett Talks, the new podcast from Leeds Beckett University. In these podcasts, we'll be showcasing our diverse community of students and academics, touching on the important themes that surround universities today. And it's time for Beckett Talks Research. I'm Dee Grismond, and each week I will be showcasing the interesting and innovative research community here at Leeds Beckett as part of this podcast series. In this week's episode, we look back at an interview recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic with Ken Scott, who's a senior lecturer at the Leeds School of Arts, based here in Leeds Beckett University. Ken Scott is one of the most prominent recording engineers and producers of the 20th century and has worked with a variety of household names, from the Beatles and David Bowie to Pink Floyd and Supertramp. I am delighted to welcome to this podcast, Ken Scott. So let's start off with an easy question and one that I think everyone will be really interested in. Um, Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into sound engineering and production. I knew what I wanted to do when I was 12 and a half. I got a tape recorder for Christmas and knew I wanted to work with tape. And when I was 16, I wrote about 10 letters, I think it was, to various places that might need someone called a recording engineer. Uh, I sent them out on a Saturday, heard back from one of the, the places on the Tuesday, had an interview on the Wednesday, heard from them on the Friday, left school that day and started to work at EMI Recording Studios, which is now known as Abbey Road, probably the most famous recording studio in the world, uh, the following Monday. So nine days completely changed my life when working at, at I'll call it Abbey Road because that's the way it's known most, working there within... Two, three months I was working with the Beatles. Uh, I continued working with them as an assistant engineer from Hard Day's Night through Rubber Soul. Then uh, as as engineer, actually recording them properly uh, from Magical Mystery Tour and through the the White Album. Short time after that I, I left Abbey Road, went to work at an independent studio called Trident. There I, I recorded three albums with uh, Elton John. I did the first America album. Uh, various artists there and finished up producing uh, David Bowie. I did four albums with David. We co-produced four albums, Hunky Dory, Ziggy Stardust, Land Insane and Pin Ups. Then on to producing a band called Supertramp, did two albums with them and many, many other acts. I finished up moving to America and I lived over in Los Angeles for just over 30 years, then moved to Nashville for two years and then was offered this incredible gig at uh, Leeds Beckett University and moved over immediately and loving every second of it. And what was it about that tape recorder that you got at 12 that really intrigued you? I became interested with recording because I fell in love with tape. There's there's a smell to tape. There's a, a feel to tape uh, that it just got me. I, I started off recording off of the radio, the, the latest hit singles and all of that. Then uh, eventually finished up. Friends would come over from school and we'd go up to the local library. We'd get uh, a book of radio scripts out and we'd record radio plays and then I'd take the tape recorder into school the next week and we'd play it in an English lesson and, and that was it. It was, I I needed to work with tape and that that was solidified a, probably a couple of years later, probably when I was 14, there was a TV series on in England called Here Come the Girls, which each each week it was based around one of the top female singers, English singers at that time. 
And I had this major crush on a singer called Carol Dean at that time. Um, of course, finally they come up, they do one, one show on her. And I was like six inches away from the TV screen, the drool coming down the side of my mouth as I watched Darling Carol. And at one point she was in a studio and she was singing into a mic and they panned from the mic up to this huge window. And I saw this guy sitting behind this gray desk. And I said, that's what I've got to do. I want to be him. I found out that it was a recording engineer. Uh, the studio was number two studio at Abbey Road that I got, became my second home for a long period. The guy behind that gray thing uh, was a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Addy, one of the, the top engineers at Abbey Road at that point. And he became a friend, a mentor. The it was just, it, everything just fell into place so perfectly. So that must have been really exciting being at Abbey Road, but can you tell me a little bit more about the job you did while you were there? At Abbey Road I did various... I worked in various departments. I started off in the tape library, which is where they started everyone, so that you, you'd have to run the tapes around all the different rooms at the studio, uh, and you got to know what editors did, what, uh, what disc cutters did, or mastering engineers as they're called today. Uh, all of these different rooms and what the people did and you got to watch and learn. Then I was uh, promoted to assistant engineer. We were called button pushers then, not uh, assistant engineers, uh, because that's all we did. We would sit by a tape machine. When the engineer said hit record, we'd hit record. When he said uh, hit play, we'd hit play. That was it. The great thing about that gig was that uh, you got to watch seven of the, the greatest recording engineers around at that time. There were three classical and four pop. Uh, you got to watch all of the different uh, producers and see how they all worked differently, both from the engineering standpoint, what mics they used, where they would put them up, uh, and also the relationship between the engineer, the producer, and the artist. As far as I'm concerned, like 80% of my job it comes down to personality. It's it's very personality driven. You don't want someone looking over your shoulder the entire time. It, it becomes very awkward. The artist, the producer has to trust you and let you get on with what you do best. So I, I got to see that. Then the next step was, was mastering, as it's called today. Back then it was disc cutting. That's taking the, the, the music or the spoken word from tape and putting it across onto the first stages of vinyl so that it can then go down to the factory and be pressed. The last step was engineering, and that's sitting behind the board. I liken it to, uh, to the lighting director for a movie, or director of photography. Uh, the engineer decides on the mics, where they're going to be put, uh, the setup in the studio of the, the instrumentation, all of that kind of thing. The, the engineer is in charge of the sound. Uh, then when I eventually moved into production, that's much more of uh, an artistic say. It's why don't you try this line, just more artistic say. A, a producer as such covers everything you can possibly think of. They can be, one day they have to be the best friend of the artist. The next day they can be a dictator to the artist. The next day they're the, the artist's shrink. It's, you cover everything during the making of an album as a producer. That, that pretty much covers it, I think. <laughs> and what would you say have been some of the highlights of your career? Oh, highlights of my career? There have been so many. It's... I, I think 
one of the the the, the major ones was when I. Uh, after I'd done uh, Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars with, with David, David Bowie, walking down the street one day and hearing one of the tracks blasting out of someone's window, that was, wow, they're actually playing it. And then not too long afterwards, going down the street and seeing kids starting with their hair the same way as David had his and just dressing like him. And just the, the, the effect that that had on the public was astounding. And being a part of that was just incredible. What have been the biggest changes you've seen in sound recording throughout your career? Recording has changed so much. It, it, it's Technology has just... I start, when I started off with the Beatles, we were, we were working on four track. We had to record bass, drums, two guitars all together at the same time. These days, no one does that. It, it's, they can be in completely different countries and they'll record bass, then they'll record the drums, then they'll record something else. It, it, there is a spontaneity, as far as I'm concerned, there is a spontaneity which is lost these days because you don't get the musicians playing together. The greatest, the greatest drug in the world for me is having a bunch of great musicians in the studio and just, they're, they're playing. And, I can just sit back, put my feet up on the desk and have that incredible music just wafting over me. That, that's amazing. And that doesn't happen very much these days. And it's, it's, not, it's not technology that's the problem. It's our overuse of technology that I find to be the problem. No one wants to make a decision. Uh, and when they do make a decision, it's to use a hundred different effects on every instrument. And it, it just, it makes it a mush. It's not, it's, to me, I like to get it as much like the musicians playing in the studio as possible, but that doesn't happen very much these days. And the whole thing of auto-tune. Uh, I cannot listen to much of the modern stuff because of uh, the use of auto-tune. I can, I can understand using it every now and again, but the, the way it's just used constantly on everything. I was lucky enough to, to work with someone that I consider to be the greatest studio performer ever, and that's David Bowie. His vocals, I co-produced four albums with David, and 95% of the vocals that we did uh, with him were first take, beginning to end, nothing. He just, what he performed that one time is what we still listen to today. It, there was one track on, uh, the opening track on Ziggy Stardust, a track called Five Years. By the end of it, he's bawling his eyes out. It was unbelievable what he went through for, for that performance. And I now, in, in some of my talks and my lectures, I will play the end of that and I pull out all of the instrumentation so that the, the listener gets to hear just his vocal. And I've had people in front of me burst out crying because it is so moving. That doesn't happen these days. It's they'll do one take and say, "Okay, we can, we can patch that up," and they'll auto tune it. They'll move it all around. It's we need to get back to the the, the real talent, someone that can perform like Bowie in the studio. So, would you say the problem is more not technology, but how we use it? Absolutely, it's the way we use it, overuse it. It's like cell phones. We well. <laughs> We used to make do with uh, one phone at home. We, well, even before that, just I remember when I was at school having to go down to the local 
call box to call my girlfriend. Uh, it, then we made do with one phone at home and work would end at six o'clock. Now it, it's everything goes on, it's 24 seven and you can get woken up by your phone three o'clock in the morning, which would never have happened before. And it's, you walk around and we are becoming very insular. It, just people walking, walking the streets, just doing that or just listening. They're not into anything that's going on around them. And it, it's, it's frightening. It, it's, we, we're a collection of people. We should try and be, one of the great things about moving over to, to Yorkshire for me, the difference between here, I think different from London and di certainly different from the States is I take my dog for a walk every morning and everyone we pass, it's good morning, good morning. Uh, that doesn't happen anywhere else. If you did that in the States, they'd think you're crazy. It, it's, it, and that's what a lot of the, the technology that we're dealing with is doing. It's pulling us further and further apart from one another. And so that insular way that we connect with each other now is happening in music as well. I remember what it used to be like. One of my group of friends, maybe me, would go out and buy a new album on a Friday. The next day we'd all get together, we'd all sit around and we'd be listening to the album from beginning to end. And if we liked it enough, we'd play it again. And it was a, it was a, a group activity, listening to the music. That's now transferred to festivals and that uh, and more of a live situation. Uh, at home, no, it's just in-ear monitors, it, it's uh, beats, uh, computer speakers. It's, we've lost that, that group thing and how important music should be. It's, it's now, uh, you're listening to something and someone calls in and just the music will suddenly switch off, you'll have your conversation and the music will start back up again. It, it's, music isn't anywhere near as important as it used to be now, which is a shame. The Leeds School of Arts is united by a common goal, to encourage individuality, to inspire creativity and to create impact. They have an exciting and experimental approach to contemporary creative practice and aim to give all students the confidence, curiosity and commitment to thrive at university and beyond. With a history that spans over 170 years, the Leeds School of Arts has over 40 courses in subjects ranging from architecture and landscape, creative technology, art and design, through to fashion, film, music and performing arts. So, if any of these subjects interest you, whether you're starting out on your educational journey or wishing to progress professionally, go to leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash LSA for more information. And here we are back with Ken Scott. So thinking about the future, what changes would you like to see in the music industry? I suppose the changes I'd like to see in music are more taking a step back to what it used to be like. I, I was lucky enough to, to go through the golden age of English recording. It, it was mid 60s to late 70s was absolutely astounding musically over here. The talent that, that came together Great, all a bunch of great guitarists, a bunch of great writers, a bunch of great singers, all at the same time. The number of people, I'm 72, uh, the, the number of people around my age, the Stones, the Beatles, uh, Elton John, David Bowie, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, it just so many of us. And we had this thing going, it came, it was down to talent. 
now, for a period of time now, it, it's been more, if you look the part, and we can, we can fake the, the performance, as long as you look good. Uh, so I'd like to see a step back to the talent side of things and move forward again. Use the technology, which is great, but don't use it to patch up what, what lack of talent there is. And connected to the future of the music industry, where do you see your work going in the future? My future is, is trying to uh, teach more of what it used to be like. Uh, just m the best thing for me to do is, is uh, masterclasses, actually doing recording. Having, having done my gig for 55 years, I do things without thinking. And so it's very difficult just to teach someone by talking because there's so much I've forgotten. Whereas if I'm actually recording someone with students behind watching, they will see me do something. Why did you do that? And I don't even realize I'm doing it kind of thing. So they can ask the question. That, that to me is the best way of doing it. And you're, of course, you'll have some students that are just, and there will be others that are totally into it. And, They'll come up afterwards and start asking questions. And it, it's, that's the great thing for me, when they, they really get interested, ask questions. And then next semester they'll come in and say, I was at one of your classes and you said do this. And I tried it and it made it all so much better. That's just bliss. That's what it's, I had the best training in the world, as far as I'm concerned, at Abbey Road. And it's trying to give some of that back to them because the type of training that I had is no longer available. And why do you think that training isn't around for people anymore? The, the training isn't there these days because there aren't... It used to be more like an apprenticeship. And you, you'd learn from the, all of these different engineers, these different mastering engineers, these different editors, uh, just being around them and them showing you what they're doing. And then practicing it yourself. And you, you might mess up, but it doesn't matter. It's... You're, you're, you're learning as you do it. You learn by your mistakes. And there were lots of recording studios where you could do that. Now, most of the recording studios have closed down and it's much more home-based. And so you don't get that opportunity to sit there with an incredible engineer, incredible producer and learn that way. So it's, it's come down to uh, entities like Leeds Beckett to, to get the word across of how to do it the best way. And one, one of the great things about here, you've got the, the uh, people that know Pro Tools 100% and all of that kind of thing, the technical end of things, they know that. But also here you've got, there's me with, with my list of uh, artists I've worked with. Uh, there is Steve Parker, who he worked with the Rolling Stones and many other people. So the, the staff here, the teaching staff here, it goes back a long way. We go back to when it sort of first started and on through. So we can bring so much to the students that they won't necessarily get at any other university. They'll get to see how we used to do it, when we used to make decisions, which they often find surprising. I will, I will record things in the way I'm used to, and that's literally making the decision, yeah, that works. 
Whereas now it's very much, we'll record that, we'll record this, we'll record this, and someone will make the decision as to which is right later on. I show them you don't have to do that. You should make the decision now. Because uh, it just makes everything so much easier as you go along. It's just trying to bring to them a little bit more of what it used to be like. I love that comment about decisions because nobody makes decisions these days, do they? In any way, shape or form. You're so right. I, I was going through a, a supermarket in the States at one point. This is when it became so obvious to me. Uh, going through the supermarket. And I was walking through the aisle that has beans. And there's a guy on his cell phone. But, but honey, uh, what kind of beans am I supposed to be getting? They're bloody beans. It doesn't really matter that much. Just grab a can of them and go. If she doesn't like it, fine, you'll learn. Don't get those next time. But, oh, no, I've got to... Uh. How do you pass on your passion for the subject to your students? I would hope that my students are already enthused about, about this, the uh, subject that I am teaching in. Uh, I, I always start off, or often start off, just asking who has a plan B. And anyone that puts their hands up, I, I just say to them, you might as well get out now. Because if you've got a plan B, you're not into this enough to actually make it. Uh, it because of my track record, they, they are more enthused. I, I, it sounds terrible, I hate saying it, but because of my, my track record, they, they tend to listen to me more, especially when I'm filling in, when, when I lose track of what I'm supposed to be doing, I will give them a story about Elton John or David Bowie or the Beatles. That, that gets them back in, interested again. So it's, yeah, I, I use my, my past a lot to try and enthuse them more. So do you think sound recording is more of a science? I look at what I do more as an art than a science. Uh, it, it's one of the things at Abbey Road, they, they did not want engineers to uh, know anything about the electronic side of things. There was a team of experts upstairs that took care of all of that. They wanted us interested in what we were hearing. I, th I think I, in my interview at Abbey Road, it's one of those strange things of, of something hearing this inner voice and not knowing where the hell it came from. But they asked who my favourite band was. Now this was 1964, everyone's favourite band was the Beatles at that point. This inner voice said, don't say the Beatles. So I said the Dave Clark Five. They, said, they looked at each other, the two guys interviewed me, and then uh, one of them said, well, why the Dave Clark Five? And once again, that inner voice. Well, I, I think the addition of the saxophone and the keyboard gives them a totally different sound from the typical two guitar, bass and drum band. They just looked at each other and grinned because that's what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear someone that was interested in the sound, that difference than knowing what goes on inside of the mixing console or the tape machine or whatever. They had others for that. And because of that, it, it's, it's more of an art. You, 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 listening to something can't be a science. It, it has to move you, which science, science will answer questions. Art has to move you in some way or another, and that's what music should do. So do you think you have a particular style? I've been told that I have a particular sound, that I have a particular style. I, other people have to gauge that. I can't. Because yeah, everything I do, to me, is different. I'm just really interested in how you listen to something and then you know what's going to work or what isn't going to work. Is that instinctive? 
instinct plays a lot in, in what I do, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it, I don't always know what will work. I, it, it's, if I knew what would work all the time, I'd be in and out very quickly and uh, I'd probably be a multimillionaire. It, it, there's a, uh, much to record companies, major record companies' chagrin, uh, I, I learned from the most experimental band in the world at the time, the Beatles, and it was try everything, because they had no problems with the amount of time they were in the studio or how much it was costing or anything like that. They were the Beatles, they could do whatever they wanted. So they would try everything. That's what I learned to do. So I, I, I'm very open to trying things all the time. So it takes longer, uh, costs more money in the studio, but uh, that's, that, that's me. And, I do, when something works, I know that it works. I'm much better at saying yes or no than I am at coming up with the ideas of why don't we try this, why don't we try that. I'm not a musician. I don't play, as such, I don't play any instrument. Uh, I managed to fiddle my way through. I played the, uh, the synth solo on Daniel, Elton John's Daniel, and that was just, I just learned it and played it. I, I certainly couldn't just go and sit down and play something. So would you say that your ears are your instrument in a way? I think that my, the instrument that I play is the mixing console, which is a dying thing these days. Most people mix in the box. I cannot do that for love or money. I, I need to, I find it, mixing is very, it's, it's living, it, it's, you're, when you're mixing, for me, you're playing with things the entire time, whereas in the, when it's in the box, it's just, you, you set it, you'll play with one thing at a time, set that in there, and it's, I, I like the, the, the life of, of doing a mix on a mixing console. So that's my instrument. I feel that I have a musician's, a musician's heart uh, and, and soul. It, it's, I don't necessarily have a musician's brain, but there, there is a part of me that is definitely on uh, par with any other musician kind of thing from deep within. So thinking back on your career, what would you say have been those happy accidents musically for you? I don't know if I'd call it a happy accident or not. It was one of, the, one of, one of them uh, was working on the White Album with the Beatles. and. I happened to make a suggestion, to, jokingly, I made a suggestion to, to John about where they should record at some point, which was a very small room by the side of the control room. Never ever thinking in a million years that he would take me seriously. Well, he did, and the next song we recorded, we had to load the entire band in this tiny, tiny room, and they all played together live, sat, uh, the vocal was live. That was amazing. and it. it I, it's still one of my favourite drum sounds that I got, and uh, it wasn't exactly an accident, but it was certainly something that I didn't expect to happen. What's the one thing you would like to convey to your students? There are two things that I would like to convey to students. One is less is more. You don't need a hundred plugins on every track. Uh, and, and the other one is make decisions. It makes it so much easier going all the way along the line. It, and it's not brain surgery. It's, it's, you're not flying a plane that if you make a mistake, it's going to go down. It, it's a guitar solo. If, if it's not the best guitar solo, so what? That's what people are going to listen to. And if, so, if people are interested in the music, 
they will accept what you give them. It, it's, it's interesting in that respect with music. It, it's, it's not, it is not a science, it's an art, and people will accept whatever you give them, good or bad. What does music mean to you? Everything. Less these days than it used to, unfortunately. More because uh, so much of the music that, that you hear on the radio is just, it's, it's, it's all computer. It's not, I, it, it scares me, the future, because uh, every major record company is investing highly in artificial intelligence. The reason they're doing that is the first album came out a few months ago. The first album ever produced, engineered, written and played by a computer. The only live person, the only live thing on it was the singer. They don't want to have to pay people, so they want artificial intelligence, then they never have to pay anyone. It, it, it always comes down to follow the money. So that's my fear for the future. It's just gonna, it's gonna finish up being like that. I do happen to believe in talent and think that talent will win out, but it, it's going to take, to win the battle that we're going through at the moment with everything from streaming to, to major labels and AI, uh, is gonna take one or two major artists that just stand up and say, hey, we can't go on like this. We've got to change it so that this new talent is able to come up because it's so hard at the moment for, for new talent to get heard. So I guess it's just so much harder now for new talent to get heard and to get signed. Absolutely. Record companies used to sign acts uh, because they believed in what they could ultimately produce uh, and the, the, the product they could come up with. And if it didn't happen on the first album, that's fine. We, we signed them because we believed in them. Now, they won't even sign them until they've had a certain amount of success through, uh, through Facebook, through all of these different, Instagram, all of that, putting things up, YouTube. If you don't have enough people watching you on YouTube, you'll never get a record deal. It's, they need to see success before they'll even sign you to, to try and, and put something out there. Thank you, Ken, for sharing some of your insights and experiences with us. The Beckett Talk podcasts are released every Tuesday. So don't forget to check our social media channels on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook to find out more details on our next episode. See you next week. Today, Leeds Beckett Research Community is delivering innovative, multidisciplinary research, helping to address some of the most pressing challenges we face today. Across a range of disciplines, our researchers are striving to improve quality of life, equality and the environment around us. We are dedicated to making a difference and our research pages showcase the real-world impact taking place at the university. You can find out more at leedsbeckett.ac.uk forward slash transform. And if you've enjoyed hearing about the research at Leeds Beckett University, subscribe to our channel and listen out for more of our Beckett Talks research podcasts.